good singing you may be singing. said good singing, but I couldn't hear you. Uh, I was out of the office on Monday and Tuesday sick. Uh, I'm here tonight. Uh, I'm not shaking hands. That's why I stayed up here. I'm not trying to be standoffish. Uh, I told Edward in the office today. I, am I, I'm on. Okay, good. I wasn't certain if I was on because honestly, I can't hear. Jessica knows I can't hear out of my left ear tonight. <clears throat> so she's been talking to me all day on this side, but... Uh, if you've been at the church any length of time, when I preach medicated, they're usually livelier. I don't know why that is, but uh, it usually just happens that way. So I hope you enjoy it. Brother Rick O'Rourke asked me if I sent out the questions. I did not. There was a few clerical things that slipped through the cracks this week. Um, I woke up Monday morning, and let's just say I went through two boxes of Kleenexes all day Monday and all day Tuesday. Uh, maybe another half a box on Tuesday. I got better. I came into the office today sanitized, medicated, and telling everybody to stay away because there was a few things I had to do in the office, uh, but went home. I'll tell you one thing that I have learned being sick. Naps are awesome. Uh, I'm getting old, I guess, because I used to not be able to take a nap because uh, I'd take a nap and I, you were just done for the day, right? But man, I, the last two days I've actually taken a nap and I don't know if it helps you medically. I'm sure there's science behind it, but uh, I felt great when I woke up. I didn't feel great for, you know, 30 or 40 minutes later, but uh, right after I woke up, man, I felt fantastic. So take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 3 this evening. I'll ask a few questions as we begin. What have we learned so far in our study of Romans? What have been the last three messages? What have we talked about? Okay, God's grace. Remember the outline or the structure that we've given to each chapter 1 and chapter 2. The beginning of chapter 1 through verse number 17, we said it was what? It was about the subject. And what was the subject? It's in verses 16 and 17. I'm like the professor, I feel like, up here. And as a student, you're not disappointing me if you can't remember. But if you can remember... It was about the gospel. Good, good. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. So the subject of the entire book is about the gospel. To understand the gospel, we looked then in chapter 1, verses 18 and following, and all of chapter 2 at the problem of sin. All right. So in other words, for us to realize we have good news, we have to understand the bad news. And the bad news at the end of chapter 1 and all of chapter 2 is that there is a, this big issue in our life, and it's called sin. Well, in chapter 1, the sin was kind of laid out for us as a universal problem of sin. And in chapter 2, we looked more specifically at morality and, and the idea of where do we even have a sense of morality. That was last Wednesday night, and, and we noted that there is a moral conscience that God has given to each of us, but also because of religion and the wickedness of religion, there is a developed moral conceit that settles upon us. The Jews are the template. They are the audience within the church at Rome that Paul is writing to. And so now we come to Romans chapter 3, and we're going to pivot away from the problem of sin. And in chapters 3, 4, and 5, we're going to look at the process of salvation. Now, some of you ask and say this, well, I thought salvation happened like that. And the answer is it does. Uh, what we're going to look at in chapter 3 tonight, we're going to look at the introduction 
to justification. We're going to look at this idea of justification in each of the three chapters here because it is the perspective that God gives us in chapter 3, chapter 4, and chapter 5 of what salvation and the process of it is. In other words, he's not telling us how you and I get saved. He's telling us, Paul is, in an argument from God's perspective of why he would even go to the the trouble of saving us. He's going to be justified in doing that. So let's pick up our reading in verse 21 down through verse 26. Just one sentence, but a long one. We'll pray, and then we'll jump into the teaching this evening. The Bible says in chapter 3 and verse 21, But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom, that whom there refers to Christ Jesus, God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood, to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say at this time, His righteousness, that He, that is Jesus Christ, that He might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Let's have a word of prayer and we'll jump into this concept of justification. Father, help us tonight as we come to the word of God, as we settle upon it. Uh, May we allow our hearts to be knit to your mind, your thinking. May the Spirit of God direct us. And Lord, as we study these truths, may we see the importance literally in Romans, of every chapter. Uh, Each one is building for us what the gospel actually is. And salvation revolves in your heart and mind around the concept of justification. Bless us, I pray in this hour, in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul, as I said, has given us the purpose and subject, then the problem of sin universally and individually now He's going to set about arguing for the simple plan of salvation that God Himself chose to redeem our fallen race. Have you ever stopped and wondered why God chose that plan? I mean, honestly, have you ever stopped and said, well, why did God pick that plan? Is there a rhyme or a reason to that plan? Is there something that we should know about that plan? Remember, the wrath of God is revealed against the unrighteousness of man in chapter 1, but we're also told in chapter 1 that the gospel reveals the righteousness of God to man. So how can we be justified in doing this? How can God, I should say, be justified in doing this? And the, the answer is much more complicated than we make it out. Well, because He loves me. And the answer is, well, yes, absolutely he loves us. He commended his love toward us in Romans chapter 5. We understand that. But did he just do it because he loved you? And the answer is, no, he needed to be justified in redeeming you. There had to be justification or cause, right and just cause for him to redeem you. God is holy, and as a holy God, he will not stand anything unholy in his presence. He will not have a relationship with anything that is unclean, undefiled, or unholy. This is our race's condition because our father, Adam, chose to reject God through sin. This is what's been dealt with to this point. God's love devised an omniscient plan 
for when, not if, Adam sinned. The argument then made in chapters 3, 4, and 5 of Romans is God's justification in restoring a relationship with sinful humanity, all while maintaining His perfect holiness and His absolute justice. Through Christ's perfect life, through His purposeful death, through His powerful resurrection, God can justifiably assign our sin to Christ. And that's what Paul's going to introduce to us here in Romans chapter 3. But it all hinges upon if we will ask for that gracious gift of life through Jesus. In these three chapters, Paul gives to us not so much what Christ did on Calvary. He doesn't go into the process of telling us what Christ did. The Gospels tell us what Christ did on Calvary. This letter to the churches is written to people who've already put their faith and trust in Jesus. What he's doing in this letter is explaining to us who have salvation why that salvation is so great. What's so important about it. He gives us both the why and the how of our ability to be justified before an almighty God. Here in chapter 3, we're going to look at the introduction to justification, and the key word is grace. We read it in our passage tonight as we read down through. It is by grace, in verse 24, by His grace that we are saved. Chapter 4 is going to be about the imputation of, of justification. Now, we may not know what that means, but if you come back next Wednesday, you will know what the imputation of justification means. That word is going to be faith, and in chapter 5, we would find the implications that flow from justification. What happens to us at that moment of salvation? And the answer is, we change. If you look in chapter 5, you see that he commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The next verses that we'll come to in chapter 5 say, much more then, much more then. Okay, you, you got it. There's got to be an actual, visible, physical kind of change in your life. You can't be the same old ho-hum person. If you were a disobedient kid to your parents, or if you were one that was a, a, a kind of a contrarian, one that always liked to poke the bear as a child since the teens are in here tonight, you can't continue in that lifestyle. You have to be different. You have to have a change. So we begin tonight here in chapter 3 with an introduction to this idea of justification. Paul first introduces in verses 1 through 20 the damnation that is in self-justification. You can't justify yourself to God. God, you need to love me. No, I don't. That's essentially what God would say. He's just told us what our problem is in chapters 1 and 2. And here in chapter 3, it has this kind of a sense that he's still dealing with the problem of sin. But, but it's a little different if we read carefully these verses. In the first 20 verses, there's an indictment against those who claim to be okay with God, those that would claim religion or claim their philosophy or claim their moralism as their means of self-justification before God. Paul convincingly concludes that just isn't so. You cannot justify yourself before God. You are damned and doomed and dead. Chapter 3 picks up from chapter 2, of course. There are those who, in, who were inwardly Jews, as you remind yourself, at the end of chapter 2. And then there were those who were just keeping the law because that's all they had ever known from tradition. Well, that doesn't save you, Paul says. It feels like chapter 3, verses 1 through 20 are closing of the problem of sin, and, and they very well may be in Paul's mind. 
However, the voice or the tenor of these verses seems much more in line with Paul presenting a damning case against those who justify their own merits before God. There are those in whom, letter A, confusion abounds. Verses 1 through 11 say this, What advantage then hath the Jew, or what profit is there of circumcision? Now again, he's just told us that there was, in chapter 2, nothing good about just following Judaism anymore. It had to be a matter of the heart, he said in verse 29 of chapter 2. And so he asked this question, well, so what advantage is there of being religious Jew? He says, much in every way it is to your advantage, chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith or the faithfulness of God without effect? God forbid. Yea, let God be true, Paul says, but every man a liar, as it is written that, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings and mightest overcome when thou art judged. Verse 5, but if our unrighteousness commend or ushers in the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? In other words, why did God then take vengeance? And Paul puts this wonderful parenthetical statement. I speak as a man. In other words, some of these questions I can't fully answer, but I can give to you what God's given to me. Verse 6, God forbid, for then how shall God judge the world? For if the truth of God hath more abounded through my lie unto his glory, why yet am I also judged as a sinner? Now, they were lying about Paul, saying essentially that Paul was going around telling everybody, hey, you just live it up. You go ahead and sin however you want. You just be as wicked as you want to be because, buddy, you have been saved by grace. And you don't have to worry about it. Paul has never said that, nor would he ever say that. But the Jews who were clinging to the religion and their power were saying, well, this is what this crazy man is teaching. He's answering these within the church who are questioning his authority and leadership. In verse 8, and not rather, as we, those of us who are in his traveling companions, slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come. He said, listen, if that's the way you think, that person's damnation is just. It's justified. You can't live that way, Paul says. What then? Are we better than they? No, and no wise. For we have before provided both Jews, proved, excuse me, both Jews and Gentiles that they were all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. The religious Jews in these verses are throwing up a a whole litany of rabbit trails trying to confuse those who had put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. They were confusing the argument that Paul is going to make. Jewish religionists, Gentile philosophers, were arguing against the benefit of God's law, the benefit of God revealing himself at all. If grace really was God's answer for salvation, Paul meets the confusion head on, First in the uh, subpoint number one, with real truth in verses one and two. What is the real truth? Is there an advantage to growing up in church? And the answer is, Amen. yes. Look at our world that is growing up outside of church. Sometimes I look at kids inside our church and wonder what they're doing. <laughs> but you look at kids outside of the church and you really wonder what is happening to our country. It's because they're not in church. Is there an advantage of growing up within a religion? Well, yes. Why? Because to them, Paul says, were the oracles of God committed. In other words, they knew God's word. They knew 
definitively right and wrong. Growing up in a religious culture allows children to learn the morals and values of that culture. They learn what is right and what is wrong. That knowledge doesn't justify them before God, but the heart of that religious belief will. In other words, what the motivation behind, ostensibly, that religion's origin was. To know the Creator, to know God. The heart of Judaism was that the Creator wanted a relationship with us. And the only way to be in a relationship was by faith, take His word for them, the law of Moses, the prophets, the books of wisdom, and from an obedient heart, do exactly what God asked. That was their advantage. That was the real truth in growing up Jewish, Paul might have said. A Jewish child growing up in a practicing Jewish home would be taught the love of God and the law of God from an early age. This emphatic and simple truth was met, number two, with three wrong takes. And that's what happens in the next verses. Those who are in the Roman church, those who were trying to corrupt or confuse the Roman church, they began in earnest giving questions that were trying to throw people off the trail. By the way, in any church, I hope it never happens in our church, but it may come someday that people will be teachers in this place who have doctrine that is damnable from the Word of God, and they may try to confuse you. Always trust the Bible. Always understand what God Himself has said. The first wrong take is given to us in verses 3 and 4. The question essentially is this, does our lack of obedience to God's commands then make God's commands void? Well, I didn't obey them, so they're not very good. That would be akin to me saying, hey, I got on the interstate and decided to drive 150 miles an hour. The 70 mile an hour speed limit is void. I mean, it might be void to you, but it doesn't mean it's void. And so when the police officer pulls you over, he's not going to pull you over and say, well, You didn't feel like going a 70, huh? Well, okay, you know what? You just go ahead, buddy, and keep doing that. Did you void the law? No, you just didn't obey the law. God gave the law so that we might know his righteous standard. It has nothing to do with whether or not you obey it, Paul says. The second wrong take that we find here is in verses 5 through 8. This is the wildest one, but we're going to see, by the way, when we get to chapter 6 and we begin looking at sanctification in 6, 7, and 8, we're going to see that this little nugget, this little question, continues into chapter 6. It seems to have been a persistent thing in the Roman church in the hearts of the Roman believers. Here's the heart of the question. Doesn't my sinning then cause God to save me from more? Ergo... Shouldn't I sin more, making God and His grace that much more amazing, that much more glorious in my life? I mean, after all, if He saved me from the wickedest and most vile of sins, then surely that is good grace. What a dumb concept. He says, God forbid here, and in chapter 6 and verse 1, He's going to say the same thing. Same thing in chapter 6 and verse 15. God forbid. No, God doesn't want you to go on sinning. He wants you to stop sinning. That's why it's good news. The bad news is you're a sinner. The good news is you don't have to anymore. Their confusion wasn't Paul's confusion. God is the judge of the world. In fact, Paul is is quoting in the question that he asks 
about judging the world, he's quoting what Abraham himself said. Is not God the judge of the whole earth? In Genesis chapter 18 and verse 25. And so he's linking back to Abraham, who, by the way, was a forerunner to the law, but was saved by faith. He's going to come back to Abraham in just a moment when we get to chapter 4. Not tonight. You're thankful for that because we'd be here for three hours. But he's going to come back to it in chapter 4. The third wrong take is in verses 9 through 11. And that is this. Does being a Jew then make me better than a Gentile? Is there preferential treatment with God? No. Of course there's not. Your religion is good, Paul tells them, in that it taught right from wrong. But you are just like the Gentile if you have not from the heart believed in God and obeyed Him. At our own root... Everyone, Jew and Gentile, are sinners before God, Paul says. The religious and the irreligious meet together in hell if they've not trusted in Jesus Christ. But I went to church every Sunday morning. They gave me gold star after gold star after gold star. There will be many in that day that say, Lord, Lord, and Jesus will say, depart from me. I never knew you. You can see in the confusion of these three takes a sense of dread and desperation growing in each question from the religious and philosophical crowd. First, maybe God's law was wrong. Second, maybe God's grace allows me to do do more evil so I can keep doing what I want, right? Third, maybe there isn't anything better about me at all. And the answer is there's nothing good about you or I. It's kind of depressing. It's kind of a damnable place to live. That's why I say there is a process of damnation being cast upon those who would self-justify. You can't walk before God and say, you need to love me. He says, no, I don't have to. Confusion or the purposeful confusion of truth causes many a soul to stay separated from God. That's what Paul is addressing here in these first 11 verses. But there's another group in verses 12 through 18 where convictions... Abound, And I don't mean this in the sense of good Christian convictions. I mean convicts. <laughs> I mean guilty people. Convicts are guilty. Here they are guilty before God. These convictions begin first with everyone being pronounced guilty. In verse 12, he says this. They are all gone out of the way. They are together or as a group, as a whole, become unprofitable. There's none that doeth good, no, not one. It's pretty basic when Paul says they are all gone out of the way. They've gone out of the way of holiness. They've left his perfection. Adam departed from his sinless state. Thus, they, Paul says here, every human being, have become unprofitable to God. Do you realize your only reason for existence is profitability to God? Not pleasure for yourself, and that's what Paul's addressing here. You've become unprofitable because of what we talked about, the problem of sin. You and your own self-justification can never get out of the category of being damned. You are doomed for a destiny away from God in hell. And he says to them, look, you're unprofitable. Man, the Jewish religionist probably was curling his toes in his little sandals there. He finishes by saying, thus there are none that can do good 
in a perpetual sense. Paul is not saying, by the way, here, that a human being cannot be capable of kindness or a measure of God-likeness in goodness. What he is saying is that within the way that is useful and profitable to God, no human being can actually produce divine good. That's what he means by saying, there's none that doeth good. You and I cannot do anything that pleases God apart from Jesus Christ, period. The second little point underneath here is this. Evil ones, and we will not take the time to read them in verses 13 through 18, but they are devilish. Evil ones are ghoulish. They're particularly ghoulish. Well, we'll we'll take the time. They're short verses. He says in verse 13, their throat is an open sepulchre. It's an open tomb. With their tongues they have used deceit. They're liars. The poison of asp is under their lips. They're literally looking to harm you in every word that they say. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. Why is that? Because they've all departed from his way in verse 12. And the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear. There's no respect or reverence of God before their eyes. He uses the phrase open sepulcher. He talks about their mouths being like serpents, linking them to Satan. They curse and are bitter against everyone. They killed innocent people without a drop of remorse. He's speaking, by the way, directly to those that killed Jesus here. Everywhere they are is destruction, ruin, and misery. The ultimate indictment of this crowd is that respect for God is not part of their thinking or part of their DNA. Confusion and convictions abound, which results in the obvious fact that, let her see, condemnation abounds. That's verses 19 and 20. Now we know what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped. You could read, shut up. Every mouth may be closed, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Not the knowledge or the power of eternal life. It's just the knowledge of sin. We are to blame for our condition. You can't blame this on God. That we are dead, doomed, and damned. He has made obvious by command to our created conscience what is right and wrong. All of this means, number one, we are without help. The whole reason God gave the law to Moses was so that man might fully grasp that it is impossible to keep the whole law. That's why the young ruler that comes to Jesus and says, I've kept all the law from my youth up. And Jesus says, go sell all that you have. And the Bible says he went away very sorrowful. Why? Because he had a covetous heart. He broke a commandment in his very heart. It doesn't matter how many good people we meet that really believe they're going to heaven. You cannot justify yourself before God. There is no justifying yourself before God. It leaves us condemned without help. But number two, it leaves us without hope. Therefore, by the deeds, by the working out of the law, there shall no flesh be justified. There it is. There's the damnation. Damnation of the self-justified is sure from these verses. Oh, if there was only good news, we made it there. Verse 21, where we read tonight, that's the good news. But the righteousness of God 
without or standing outside of the law was made obvious, plain, manifest. So number two in our outlines, deliverance comes through Savior justification, not self-justification, not turning over a new leaf, not just cleaning yourself up so you look right before the eyes of men. That does nothing for you. You may look pretty clean, but it's not going to do anything for you. The only deliverance comes through the Savior, Jesus Christ. What is needed is someone who could satisfy the law, providing a way for God to be justified in accepting us that is also satisfying to His holiness and His justice. He cannot compromise His holiness and His justice just because He loves us. And the bridge between those is Jesus. The the bridge between those is the word grace. Grace is the key to understanding justification. It isn't that God violates his own word in accepting us. Well, all right, I'll take you. No, this is part of a plan of justification. If God violated his own word, he wouldn't be God. The Bible says, let God be true and every man a liar. It is through his grace that he can keep his word. It is through His grace that He can guard His holiness. It is through His grace that He can demonstrate His love. It is through His grace that He can offer us justification at all. Justification delivered through our Savior is first, letter A, explained for us. That's what we read tonight in verses 21 through 26. And we will take the remainder of our time. I'm going to take about 10 minutes. I'll be about 8.05 before we're done. And if it's not, just blame it on the medication. I'm pretty sure we'll be there, okay? Why does God take the time to explain justification to us? I mean, it's after all a divine explanation. It is in keeping with and consistent with God's logical mind. He doesn't violate what he said. He builds upon it and provides within it. It is an explanation here that our mind can also understand. That we can rationalize how we are saved when we got saved. Sometimes we get saved and we ask Jesus to save us. And the answer is yes, I recognize I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. But do we understand the heavenly interaction and exchange that goes on? Well, it's all given to us here in verses 21 through 26. God's justification of man through Jesus first is scriptural. It's in keeping with his word. In verses 21 and 22, he tells us that Jesus was manifest outside or without the law, but he was witnessed by whom? What does it say? The law and prophets. I think I heard somebody say that, didn't I? I don't know. Maybe it's medication. Right? Conversation I'm having in my own head. Well, what does it mean, the law and the prophets? Anyone, Anyone want to venture a guess? Scriptures, that's why I put it, yeah, but what is the law? What are the first five books of the Bible called? The law, the Pentateuch, often the Torah. And and so as we look at the first five books of the Bible, that's the law. Well, what are the rest of the Bible? Well, there's historical documents, there's poetry and songs, and there's prophecy. And so the songs may sing about the coming Messiah. They might be prophetic in their song. The historical records of the kings and of Samuel are important of Ezra and of Nehemiah. 
But the two that are most important that Jesus must prove that he is God in the flesh is that he keeps all of the law and that he fulfills all the prophecy. And so what Paul does here is he doesn't get down in the weeds of every little psalm and every little song and every little historical document. He says, listen, the two things that Jesus had to satisfy, that had to witness to who he was, was the law and the prophets. So long as those two are covered 100%, the rest is going to be covered 100%. The law condemns us. We just read that. But you know what the law could not do to Jesus? It couldn't condemn him. The only accusations that were ever made against Jesus were either from paid liars or short-sighted Pharisees claiming he was blasphemous. They didn't understand actually who he was. His whole life was lived without sin. This was manifest or made obvious to all who knew him. His life was witnessed by the law and the prophets. He lived out the law perfectly and he fulfilled every prophecy completely. Over 600 prophecies were given of his first advent, his first coming, which was in, before Paul's writing here in what Paul is addressing here. There are some of the prophecies that no human being could manufacture or manipulate. Let me ask you this. This is the easiest one to ever deal with when you have to deal with it factually. Did you plan the day of your own birth? Did you help bring it about? No, you didn't. We had a wonderful conversation at dinner tonight. I was telling the boys about the guy that I took driving class with when I was a kid who was blind in his left eye. He's a friend of mine. He was our youth pastor's son. Jessica, for a minute, before, well before we met, had dated him. I said, man, that guy could have been your dad, jokingly. And Nate's like, well, no, I think you have to be my dad to be my dad. I said, yes, you understand how it works. I'm not going any deeper at dinner tonight. If it, didn't, if it wasn't Kyle and Jessica that got together, there wouldn't be a Drew, a Nate, or a Luke. Bottom line, end of story. Right? Nobody can manipulate that. You can't manufacture before you're ever thought of or conceived in the minds of your parents or the twinkle of your dad's eye that you would be born of these two people. You can't control that, but God can for himself. And that's why he uses these phrases very particularly here. He is witnessed by the law and by the prophets. Very rarely do we get to pick how and when we die. Certainly not at the hands of a cruel Roman dictatorship in the heat of anger from a Jewish mob. But Jesus died perfectly in keeping with every word of every part of the prophecy of Isaiah. Thus, verse 22 says the righteousness of Jesus, the salvation that we have, is two things. It is unto And upon all. Now, here's a great truth, and keep it very straight in your mind. Is everybody saved because Jesus died on the cross? No. But is everybody able to be saved because Jesus died on the cross? And the answer is that righteousness is unto, but it's only upon all that believe. Read the verse very carefully. Don't take my word for it. Take the Bible's word for it. It is unto, it doesn't say unto all and upon all. It says unto and upon all who believe. As we understand this then, 
Faith in Jesus Christ is the aspect of salvation for us. It's what brings the justification. First and foremost, justification is scriptural, but it is also, letter B, suitable. It is suitable. I guess technically it's number two. I got my outline wrong. It is suitable. In verses 23 and 24, the Bible says this, For all of sin come short of the glory of God. Great verse. The beginning of the Romans road, isn't it? Thank goodness it's not the end of the Romans road. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The beginning of the Romans road is here in verse 23. The solutions suitably meets, excuse me, the solution suitably meets the need of what our problem is in chapters 1 and 2. Salvation alone solves sin's problem. All those sinners can be justified freely by God's grace. But only, the only way we are justified, he says here, is through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Or we might say it this way, the redemption that resides or dwells within the work of Jesus Christ. He alone in his person can justify us. Because he alone in his person died, was buried, and rose again. He alone, Jesus, in his person, paid the redemption price. Justification perfectly then suits the needs of God's justice, holiness, and wrath. Along with or alongside of the fact that it suits the needs of his love, mercy, kindness, and goodness. Because he graciously gives the redemption price for us. So justification is scriptural. Justification is materially suitable, meaning it is specifically suited for what our need is. Not deeds of the law, but gracious redemption. But let us see it as substitutionary. Verses 25 and 26 say, "...whom God had set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood, to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say, at this time His righteousness, that He might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus." Now, I have preached an entire sermon last year for one of our uh, Lord's Suppers on the concept of propitiation. So tonight, it will not be in depth. I will simply state this, propitiation, helasterion is the word in the Greek, has a dual meaning of taking something away while subsequently or at the same time simultaneously putting something in. It means to expiate and propiate. The translators used the word and chose the word propitiation. The concept was common to the Jews for it was the word or the concept used of the covering of the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies, which was sprinkled with the blood of the expiatory victim, that lamb, on the annual Day of Atonement. One author says it this way, this rite signifying that the life of the people, the loss of which they had, merit, they had merited by their sins, was offered to God in blood as the life of the victim. And that God, by this ceremony, was appeased and their sins were expiated or taken away. You can think of exiting them. Hence, the lid of expiation, the propitiatory, or that's where the mercy seat was. It sat right there. Jesus, and particularly from this passage, Jesus' blood is the propitiation that God, the Bible says, set forth to substitute for our blood, for our lives. His innocent blood for our guilty blood. His innocent life for our guilty life. 
Paul proves the propitiation process in these very verses. That which is removed by, followed by that which is set into that void. He has two declarations. I want you to look at the verse very carefully. In verse 25, he says, to declare. And at the beginning of verse 26, he says it again. Well, he's making two declarations because that's what propitiation does. It declares that our sins have been remitted, removed, and that Christ's righteousness has been put in. The first part of the declaration is removal of guilty, cursed sin. The second declaration is, and I'm declaring you righteous just like you're Jesus. Man, that's a pretty good deal. I mean, that's the kind of substitution we all want. I I don't know about you ladies, but Jessica, when she goes to Walmart or when she goes to Kroger and the click list says there's been a substitution, it never works out that good for us. But for you and I in salvation, it works out that good for us. Right? I never get the real Doritos. I get the faux Doritos every single time. Apparently I should get no Doritos. But anyway. Man, salvation is so great. God gets all of the worst of us taken out and put upon Jesus Christ. And we get all the best of him put in by Jesus Christ. That is propitiation as it is declared here. And that's all part of justification. How does God now look at us? He looks at us as righteous, Christ-like ones. Well, where do you get that from doctrinally? Right here in the Bible. He took out the sins, the remitting. That means payment has been made. And so they can exit stage left. I guess that would be that way for me. They can leave. And entering in is the righteousness of Christ into my life. By the way, we're going to get into all of that when we get to chapters 6, 7, and 8. But this is just an introduction to justification. The fact is settled on this then, he concludes. Jesus is the just one who can justify you receiving justification before God the Father. That's what he says at the end of verse 26. When I studied it through with Ethan, we came up with this phrase, Jesus is the just justifier, right? That's what he is from this passage. Thus, justification is explained as God's scriptural, suitable, and substitutionary removal of sin's curse and the initiation of Christ's righteousness into our lives all through faith in Jesus Christ. Man, what a gracious gift. How amazing is God's grace. The final two points tonight are very, very brief, I promise. Paul addresses in verses 27 through 30, How justification enters. It's by faith. We're going to get much more into that in chapter 4. He says very pointedly, where's boasting? By the way, if you didn't do anything to earn your salvation, the answer is nowhere. But if everything's by the deeds of the law, boasting is everywhere. He says, where's boasting then? It's excluded. By what law of works? No. But by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude or we've decided that a man is justified by Faith. Well, faith saves me. My friend, grace saves you. Faith is the vehicle that carries you there. Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Seeing it is one God which shall justify the circumcision by faith. All he's saying in this passage, by the way, is the Jews knew the creator God. They knew the revealed God of the word. They knew the Messiah was coming. They should have seen him. And so all they have to do in their recognition is recognize that by faith, that's the Messiah. That's Jesus Christ. And then he says the Gentiles are saved, what? Through faith. 
What does that mean? Look, if you were an Ephesian or if you were a Philippian, if you were a Roman that was reading this, you would have been worshiping a million different deities and all of a sudden you get to meet Jesus. Well, I don't know anything about this Jesus. Well, let me explain to you who this Jesus is and what this Jesus did. Huh, that's very interesting. You as a Gentile did not have the history or the lexicon to pull from that the Jew did. They just had to be saved by faith. But you as a Gentile, me as a Gentile, we had to be saved through faith. That's what Paul is addressing here. That's how justification enters. God's grace comes to both groups using the exact same vehicle, faith. Our Savior delivers justification. It's been explained. He's even told us how it enters. But finally this evening... Justification is established. In verses 30 and, or verse 31, excuse me, he says this. Do we then make void the law through faith? All right, so is everything before this trash? Garbage. File 13. Delete folder. I mean, is it, is it all of that? And of course, his answer is, God forbid. Three times he's made that statement or that phrase here in chapter 3. He's going to say it, by the way, a lot. What Paul is addressing, he's countering the confusion, and those convicts, those who were just reprobates, he's countering all of them to move us past damnation and bring us to deliverance. God forbid. Yea, by faith, faith in Jesus Christ, he says we established the law, so it's established. Having introduced God's divine plan for justifying us through our Savior Jesus Christ, next week we will move into the imputation All right, does God really care how it moves from him, from this offer of salvation? The introduction, justification is sitting out here and all we have to do is take it. Does he actually take us through the process of how we get it? Oh yeah, man, chapter four is great. I hope you read it this week. And if I'm not sick, I'll even put some questions out there for you. Uh, If you want to ask, you can always ask me questions. You can just email me at the church. I'll have Edward make up a few questions and send to you if I'm sick, right? He says, yes. All right. I think that's it for tonight. Some of you have said, you must really like teaching Romans. I love teaching Romans. Um, I have no idea how I get it done in 30 minutes because I could go for another hour. You wouldn't want to hear it because then I'd start coughing and sneezing. So let's close tonight in a word of prayer and we'll be done with chapter three. Father.